Broadcasting from occupied territories, war the flea media, it's the Reality Dysfunction Podcast. A space where a diverse group of brown folk from across the nation explore the political experiences and social future of our Chicano Latino community. Control the narrative, resist the dysfunction. Okay, so let's take it away, right? So welcome once again to the Reality Dysfunction Podcast. Today, we'll continue to explore the importance of ethnic studies. And our focus today will be on the fight for Puerto Rican, Latinx, and queer story, studies. So who of our Reality Dysfunction co-hosts do we have in here right now? Dr. Ernesto Morales. <laughs> It's good to be here. I'm super excited about this conversation. I'm Alex Lozada, and I'm coming to you from the East Coast, and I'm very excited to be here talking with all of us today. So our invited guest is Lawrence Lafontaine Stokes, professor of American culture, romance, languages, and literatures, and women's and gender studies at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Larry, as he preferred, was born and raised in my wonderful San Juan, Puerto Rico, and received his BA from Harvard in 91, and his MA and PhD from Columbia in 1999. So before I continue, Larry, do you want to say hello and hola to everybody here? Um, hi, everyone. Thank you so much for inviting me to the Reality Dysfunction podcast. I'm really excited to talk to all of you. Thank you, Larry, and welcome. So Larry is the author of Queer Recants, Cultures and Sexualities in the Diaspora, 2009. He's also the uh, co-editor of Keywords for Latina, Latino Studies with Deborah Vargas and Nancy Raquel Mirabal out of New York University Press in 2017, as well as several other books of fiction, and there it is. His most recent book, Translocas, The Politics of Puerto Rican Drag and Trans Performance out of the University of Michigan Press in, out of 20, this year, 2021, is part of the Triangulations Lesbian, Gay, Queer, Theater, Drama Performance Series. Larry performs in drag as Lola Von Miramar since 2010 and has appeared in several episodes of the YouTube series Cooking with Drag Queens. Larry's research areas of interest include Latin American, Caribbean, and U.S. Latino Latina literature and culture, theater and performance studies, queer, lesbian, women, and gender studies, and gay studies, and he's the former director of the Latina Latino Studies program at the University of Michigan. And very important to mention, his grandmother is originally from Mayagüez, Puerto Rico, out of the West Coast. Today, we have Larry here to discuss with us why Latinx, Latino, Latina, Puerto Rican, and Chicano studies, as well as queer and LGBTQ studies, are key to U.S. culture and society, his Futuros Projectos as an author and an artist, and have a brief conversation on his upcoming appointment in July 2021 as the chair of the Department of American Culture at University of Michigan. So Larry, I'm going to ask the first question. Why are Latinx, Latino, Latina, Puerto Rican, and Chicano studies key to U.S. culture and society? And we've had this conversation, but we want to hear what you have to say. Wow. 
that is a big question and i don't know if i can answer all of it but i can tell you why i study latina latino latinx studies and why i teach it um it has to do with a very important population in the united states almost is it 60 million people yeah. it has to do with my own personal history as as you mentioned i am from puerto rico and in fact it's interesting because at first i really thought of myself as a person who did puerto rican studies and latin american studies but but we live in a moment of profound transformation I suppose you can say that moment of profound transformation has been going on for at least 150 years. But at least since the 1970s, there's been great demand in American universities to under, for students. Students want to understand. Um, students want people to understand um, what is the history of Latinx people in the United States? What are the roots of Latinx oppression? Um, like, why are we in the situation that we are? And in my specific case, as a gay Puerto Rican who writes about queer culture, so I'm really interested in the intersections or the particularities of LGBTQ Latinx experience and that is what I write about um, that is what I frequently talk about and because sometimes those communities don't talk to each other or sometimes those social movements in the United States like the gay and lesbian movement in the United States historically was very racist. It excluded people of color in the 1960s and 70s. There were very big major tensions. Uh, and then at the same time, uh, Puerto Rican activists, Chicana and Chicano activists were very resistant to queer people. There was lots of anti-gay and lesbian bias in Latina and Latino communities. Not always, but in some very specific cases. So I really see my work as bridging bridging the sphere of gender and sexuality and issues of race and ethnicity in a progressive agenda in the United States. Wow. I mean, I think that that's, that's really exciting. I was telling Juan Carlos, you know, as we were kind of having a conversation about this, that for myself, you know, as a Chicano studies scholar, um, one of the things that I've really been um, doing a lot is is uh, reading, um, you know, queer theory, and just how relevant I think it is to every. I mean, much more so than all the a, a whole bunch of other ideas that are coming out. I mean, like the whole, um, yeah, a lot of the stuff that's being written. You know, one of my, my favorite uh, authors, somebody that I really go to a lot, is Jack uh, Haverstam. And, you know, I use that book, the, um, the Queer Art of Failure, a lot. And I, I teach this class in, in Man and Masculinity. I think that, and I'm still thinking through a lot of these things, you know, you know, how it is, it just kind of like marinates in your brain. You know, when, when everybody talks about oh, toxic masculinity, you know, and, and obviously rightfully so, um, it's a discussion that that has to be had but i think that the real answers for a lot of that lie in in queer theory is is a way of really challenging like it's i think it might be the only way to challenge toxic masculinity that we have right now uh, at our in our arsenal 
But I, I, I think the, the, the interesting thing, so I, I agree that the work of Jack Halberstam is really useful and important, but there have been queer Latinos since the 1960s, um, people like John Retchie, like precisely trying to make that argument yeah. that there were toxic masculinities in the Mexican-American community. Yeah. And I think that the big difference is that in the 1960s, people were very resistant. Yeah. They did not want to have that conversation. And it's the same thing in the 1970s and early 80s with people like Cherie Moraga, mm -hmm. Gloria Ansaldúa. The publication of this bridge called my back in 1981 is is a major intervention in what we consider queer studies yeah. some some people don't think of it as queer studies um but i do uh, it, it really comes from a position of challenging patriarchy homophobia lesbophobia seeing coalitional politics not only uh, between chicanas and puerto ricanas but also with Asian American women, Jewish women, Black women, Native American women. Yeah. So, so in, in the 1990s, when the field of queer studies became very visible and consolidated, that there was a, a resistance to acknowledge that people of color had been doing that. Uh, that James Baldwin was doing that in oh, the 1960s, yeah. that Gloria Ansaldúa was doing that in the early 1980s, that John Retchie, Shuri Moraga, Manuel Ramos Otero, Luz Maria Umpierre. So, so part of it is not only integrating queer theory and trans theory, it's also rewriting that history yeah. because that history has whitewashed its origins. And, you know, they, some people trace origins to Michel Foucault, and to Freud, and that's amazing. And Foucault has brought so much, but so did James Baldwin. Yeah. And so did Silvia Rivera, a Puerto Rican trans activist at Stonewall, who was very active in the early 70s. So that's, I think, that I'm, I'm more excited about that. Or I guess maybe like putting people in conversation, say like, what happens? when you read um, Jack Halberstam side by side or together with Silvia Rivera yeah. or with John Retchie. Like for some people that might explode their brains. <laughs> no, I, I think, I think, I think that's great. Great. Yeah. Retchie that's is, the way it should be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I agree. I think it is the way it should be. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. I was gonna say, and it's also important, like you were saying, like it's rewriting of that history and it's like, who are the storytellers? And I think that's a very common thread theme that we talk about on here. And is is how how are we elevating those voices? You know, you are now in front of a classroom teaching these courses. Todd is in front of the classroom teaching these courses, writing, selling your own works. And being on this podcast, I think, is really important to being able to tell the stories from our own perspectives, not from an outsider perspective. Um, Alex, I, I, I agree. And it's really interesting because it happens in very unexpected places. So for example, it happens in the introduction to Latina, Latino studies class. For example, when you start to teach Juno Diaz. So mm -hmm. my, my experience as a first year professor straight out of graduate school was a teaching drown and having a student come into the classroom in, in the late 1990s, very, very upset. 
because he did not know why we had to read. Well, he was upset because Juno Diaz talks about um, male sexuality among men, men who are having sex with men. In fact, I mean, that title story, Drown, is precisely about the anxiety, the homophobia, the tension. So these two guys have an intimate relationship, but then they realize that that really goes against like what they have been taught about Latino masculinity. And, and then the protagonist says, you know what? I don't want to talk to you anymore. I don't know who you are. Uh, like, get out of my life. And nobody understands what happens. And what happens is toxic masculinity, yeah. right? So I, I didn't frame, I didn't do a pre-reading activity. I forgot to tell the students, oh, by the way, um, we are going to discuss Juno Diaz. He is a male Dominican-American author. And in this short story, there is a discussion about homophobia and the tensions. And so I guess I do try to set up arguments so that people don't face that anxiety, but it still happens. It, it happens. Uh, and I mean, I think that's what we're here for. That, that's what we can do in the classroom, not only in the classroom, but as catalyzers, as people who have that knowledge and expertise. And that is yeah. what makes it exciting yeah. and, and relevant and very important. Yeah, there was, I don't know if you read, there was an article maybe about a month ago in the New York Times about that one professor. I think he's at Princeton and he teaches within their classical languages department. He teach, did you read about him? He's Dominican. I think that is Daniel Padilla. In yes, Classics yes, Padilla, that's him. Mm -hmm. And it was fascinating to read even him talking from this perspective as this you know, Black Dominican immigrant man, right, teaching within the classics and even the whitewashing that he has seen and is seeing and how that is kind of fueling a lot of this kind of white supremacy and, and things that he sees that within the insurrection that happened and how that is like in popular culture and the whitewashing of our classics. It was fascinating. They also have it like as a, I heard it, I listened to the story. So it's really- Oh, oh and, and in that case, it's really about transforming our sense of what classics can do and, and what it is. So first of all, it's about recognizing a history of racism and exclusion in the field of classics, but also saying that when you come to classics, you know, to the, te the, the teaching or, or scholarship on ancient Greeks and Romans, that you can do that as a person of color and that you can ask very interesting questions as a person of color that can really transform the field. So that in fact, a, a field that many people think is boring, irrelevant, like why, on, why do we have to learn what happened in, in Athens in the fourth century before the Christian era? Well, Daniel Padilla and other people say, actually, well, it's the basis of democracy. It's very relevant. All fields should be open um, to democratizing gestures, to the integration of people of color in the faculty yeah. ranks. And, and also he was saying that, you know, there is a lot of like man-to-man -man intimacy as well, but we don't really talk about that. But it, it exists even, you know, in those texts. And then we should be recognizing all of it, not just, you know, the whitewashing, but also the hetero whitewashing, <laughs> the hetero washing, or whatever, you know, of, of all of it as well. Or just the elimination of the intimacy, right? I mean, it, yeah, I mean, the, the fact that, that men aren't intimate with each other, you know, mm -hmm. it is just, 
I mean, it's ludicrous, you know, and, um, you know, absolutely. Uh, the, just the, the taking away of that, I think is also, it, it goes a long ways towards, you know, dehumanizing uh, men. Right. And, mm-hmm. and really making, make, making us seem, I think in sometimes ways that, that we're not like that we're all predatory, you know, and that we're all, you know, it's just, it's just about sex or it's this or that, or, you know, that you can't, you know, tell your, your friend that you love him, you know, um, cause if you do that, there, there's something shocking about that, you know, or to, to hug them or whatever. I mean, this is, these are all, yeah, I, I think I, I, I totally feel that, especially, well, I know that that isn't necessarily having think, but the whitewashing of these, um, of these subjects, right. And who's, who's fit to teach them, you know? And I, I think that it, you know, coming at it from like a faculty perspective, I mean, can also see too how it's just this sort of like de facto glass ceiling, right? Like if you're black or Latino, you can't teach, you can't teach classics, right? Like, and so then it's just another way of keeping us, you know, just within this one, this one framework of, you know, what's happening in the academy, whereas, and then the academy is that simultaneously saying, well, this isn't real education. Like Chicano studies, that's not real college you know um that's just something that people do electives yeah 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 and but i would say that it's not it's not just for men and masculinity it's also for for women yes and femininity and the relationships between women so gloria ansaldua has a really good essay from the early 90s it's called to queer the writer loca escritora y chicana and she talks about how she doesn't, she's not really, she wasn't that really into the word lesbian, which is a, a classical word from, yeah. from the Greek island of Lesbos, um, from the Greek poet Sappho. So Gloria Saldua says, uh, for her, lesbian was a term that really circulated among white middle-class women. So in that essay, Saldua says, I think of myself as loca. Loca, a crazy woman. That loca is the term that responds to my community. I mean, first of all, it's in Spanish. It's a word that circulated in the border, in Texas, in the valley. I am not a lesbian. I am a loca. And loca for me is a very exciting word because, of course, it is used against women um, who are um not normative who are free in their sexuality or who are sex workers but loca is also a term that is used uh, against or by effeminate men so it's not only crazy woman it is also like um faggot which is a strong word i mean these are complex words um but but that's kind of like so those bridging the bridging the the bridging between women's resistance and men's resistance is something that i'm really interested in yeah you know i i literally want to kick alex and todd out of the conversation because i want to ask you all the questions and have you to myself but i'm not going to be <laughs> selfish like that i am a gay queer man right so these same intersections for me have been present all the time right and as you mentioned you know the word loca you know has been present in my life for you know when i started coming out after like within five four i i came out of the class in the states so but within five years three years that was the word i call loca loquita loki you know with my <laughs> yeah just the variety of how i call my 
gay male friends and even lesbian friends. Y mira loca, you know, and it's the same thing. And it goes beyond the woman that may be crazy, right? So, but I think, so I think it's a, a perfect opportunity for me to then ask you about your most recent publication, Trans Locas, The Politics of Puerto Rican Drag and Trans Performance. So within that context of locas and also understanding that trans is a different terminology. So how can we, you know, mix all this information as you're, you know, saying it? So tell us a little bit about the book. Yeah. So I, I also came out, so to speak, um, in the United States after leaving Puerto Rico. So we are what Manolo Estavillo refers to as sexiles. And I don't, I don't think I, well, I kind of knew that for me, like staying in Puerto Rico as a teenager, as a college student, was going to be complicated. And so I think it was one of the motivations to come study in the United States. And it, interestingly enough, so I, I came out in English. So, you know, the word gay was kind of the word that really circulated a lot. And then in the 1990s, when I moved to New York City, I met the writer Angel Lozada. And Angel Lozada was really into loca. And I just remember I found it very disconcerting. I was like, uh, I, I found it confusing because, well, it's a stigmatized, it can be a stigmatized term, but Angel Lozada was all about it. And in fact, his second novel, No Quiero Quedarme Sola y Vacía, the protagonist is called Loca. Uh, she goes out with another Loca in Washington, D.C. And I was like, ah. Uh, and, and then the clincher in 2009, uh, the drag queen Nina Flowers appeared on the first season of RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, and then her catchphrase was the word loca. So then it really went, it's not just a word that Puerto Rican queers are, are using. I mean, it's, it's a word that's circulating on transnational television. So in, in the early 2000s, I was really interested in, in, in writing about queer Puerto Rican performers who use drag, people like Javier Cardona, Eduardo Alegría, Freddy Mercado, Arthur Aviles. And then it was kind of just like playing around with terms. So, so they do drag sometimes, not always. In, in Spanish, we say transformismo and travestis. Those are some of the words that are used. And um, I knew that I, I, I wanted to write about the specificity of Spanish and how Puerto Ricans move back and forth from Spanish to English and how certain words in English like gay or homosexual or even queer, they're, they're useful, but they don't, they don't really represent the complexity of that living in between languages and in between geographies. So it was really a, a playful metaphor. And I thought I was very clever making up this new term, translocas. And then it turns out some other people had also uh, made it up. <laughs> and in fact, um, uh, Lionel Cantu, who was a Chicano scholar in California, who unfortunately died very young, but who wrote a very important book about the sexuality of migration. So he was studying Mexican male queer migration to the United States, and he wasn't even able to publish his book because he died as an assistant professor. Um, and Salvador Vidal Ortiz and, uh, and Cantu's advisor published his book. 
So that word was circulating and it was embraced by a feminist group uh, of, of scholars, uh, which was mostly women, but also included Lionel. And they, they published the anthology Translocalities, Translocalidades. And they also talk about considering themselves translocas because they do feminist work in translation across borders in the Americas. So I'm really interested in, in the anxiety that the word loca creates for feminists and for queer people and queer scholars, but also translocas as a space of possibility. So the book just came out. I mean, I've been writing and publishing about it for a really long time, but the book just came out. So I don't know what the reception is going to be. People might say, uh, nice try, but let's move on to another term. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, it's interesting because, um, so, for example, queer Chicanas and Chicanos have been recuperating Joto, Jota, and Joteria. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting because in Puerto Rico, if you say Joteria, people just don't know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. It's not a word we use. Jota. So there's lots of regional variation. But in Puerto Rico, maricón, pato, pata, loca. Those are terms that we use. And that's why I have written about them. I have published about them. And I mean, and every time I talk about them, I have to explain, please don't go around using these words. Right. <laughs> I mean, you have to be very careful. It's, it's not about getting everybody to repeat the word, but it really is about getting people to understand that we're not all gay or queer in the same way. So it's kind of grabbing our own terminologies, right? Retaking our terminologies, finding other term, uh, definitions and understanding all the uh, different definitions across. And it's kind of the same thing for queer theory. When we talk about queer theory and queer studies, you know, queer was like a bad word. What's an, oh, you're queer. Oh, that's so queer. You know, so those are like regaining that. So, and, you know, beyond mentioning something on that, I also would like, Larry, if you can speak you know, to our communities and our listeners in, in, in simple terms, what the definition of what are queer studies and LGBTQ studies, just to make sure we're all on the same boat here. Yeah, yeah, Juan Carlos, that's a, a good question. So, for example, my first book was called Queer Recons. Queer Recons, and people will, it, it generated mixed reactions. So some people are like, what is that? And some other people are like, why are you using that word? So part of what happens is that queer in the early 1990s became a very useful term um, for people to signal that they were doing gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender studies, but that they were doing it in a different way, that they wanted to move away from strict identity categories or from identity politics, that it was not just simply about, oh, I'm gay, and now I am going to talk or I'm going to tell you what gay is about, but that it was really about challenging notions of gender and sexuality in society, that it was really about destabilizing our understanding of gender and sexuality and to mark that division. So you have activist groups like Queer Nation um, to highlight uh, ambiguity, to, um, to highlight tensions, 
to to kind of like not reify categories, like uh, to acknowledge the risks of identity politics. Identity politics can be useful and strategic and necessary, but they can also put us in boxes. So I think queer theory, right, was trying to challenge that. Um, and it was just a label that stuck. And for me personally, queer theory really comes out of women of color feminism. Some people acknowledge that genealogy, some people do not. But then the issue, so queer theory arrives, it becomes very popular, but so much so that it is commodified. You st- the word queer starts to appear on television. For some people, it totally loses its stigma. So queer eye for the straight guy. Meanwhile, you have older people who are so have been so affected by the word that they still find it offensive. So a, a funny story I like to tell is, is meeting the writer Larry Kramer, a very important gay author. And I went up to him and I was like, Mr. Kramer, your name is Larry and my name is Larry. And I teach queer studies at the University of Michigan. And here, innocent, uh, you know, I'm, I'm expecting him to say, that's fantastic. And instead he turns around and he says, I hate that word. <laughs> so, so, I mean, so those are reactions that we have to anticipate that might happen. And I anticipated, you know, we, we do complex, uh, uh, controversial work. So there might be people, there are people, who do not like, who do not like the word queer, do not like the word loca. In fact, some of the artists I write about have real resistance to these labels. And in Latin America, you know, in Spanish, well, queer, queer doesn't really exist. It's a word in English. So some people have said, well, how do you say it in Spanish? Do we just adopt the word in English, which is one option, and we do that. But there's also been an effort to change the spelling. So instead of writing it Q-U-E-E-R, like what happens when you transform queer and make it into a Latinx or Latin American Spanish language concept by spelling it C-U-I-R. So that's a really interesting tension. And then there's people like the feminist philosopher Sadak Valencia from Mexico, who, you know, she talks about from queer, Q-U-E-E-R, to Queer, C-U-R. What happens when you put those two spellings or it's, it's t- the same pronunciation, but it's kind of acknowledging that we're not in Spanish, in Latin America, in communities of color, we're not LGBTQIA in the same way um, necessarily than mainstream white Anglo-American middle-class society. We're not, that's why there's Latinx pride. And that's why there's reality dysfunction podcast. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. This is this is really interesting. I I mean seriously, it's uh, I know that for myself that my my, I would say that my intellectual journey really really began with uh, that book, uh, this bridge called my back, and with third world, U.S. feminism, and uh, you know Ansel Dua. But I mean honestly, I've always been a Moraga fan to be, you know, I mean, really. And her essay, uh, uh, Queer Aslan, you know, um, and I think it was from her book, The Last Generation. I mean, that that essay really had a profound impact on me, you know, and and the people that I was, that I was working with at the time. And it, it just really, 
yeah, I mean, it really made me see things in, in, in a very different way. You know, I mean, I grew up very, what I think would be considered very normal. And the, you know, the whole, you know, very uh, cis, very hetero, you know, and uh, just um, didn't even consider until I got to a certain point, any of these other uh, perspectives. But yeah, the, the impact, especially I would say really from Moraga. I know that a lot of people really, especially in the Chicano community, they feel very impacted by Gloria Anzaldúa, and and I, I I recognize that and respect it and honor it. But uh, I've I've always been a Maraca fan, and yeah, just no. those yeah those yeah. initial writings were just they blew me away back back in the early nineties, you know yeah. Uh, well, Sheree Maraca is is a crucial figure. Yeah. First of all, she's still alive. Yeah, she's still writing. She's still talking. She's still annoying people. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, she's a very complex thinker. Um, she has rightly been, taking, been taken to task by people like Francisco Galarte in his new book, uh, uh, Brown Transfigurations, because Moraga has not been open to trans Chicanos um, like Frank Galarte, for example. Um, but Mor Moraga's essay, Queer Aslan, is really crucial. And I, I think that part of what happens is that writers like Moraga and Ansaldúa write mostly in English. So that makes it easier to circulate in the United States. And I think a lot of the queer thinking um, by Puerto Rican authors was happening in Spanish. And then what happens is that maybe they get read in Puerto Rico, but sometimes not even there. And frequently they do not get read in the United States. So people like Manuel Ramos Otero or Luz Maria Pierre or people like um, Juanita Ramos, um, who, which is the pen name of Juanita Diaz Coto, uh, a professor um, at SUNY Binghamton who co-edited Compañeras Latina Lesbians. So I think my goal as an activist scholar, as a teacher, as a writer, has been to raise awareness so that it's not just about John Retchie and Sheree Moraga and Gloria Ansaldúa uh, and Ernesto Martinez, as fabulous, and Rigoberto Gonzalez, as fabulous as they are. Um, it's, it's also about uh, people from Puerto Rico, people from Cuba, people from Central America, like Maya Chinchilla, um, who are doing really interesting work on Central American American queer studies or queer culture. So, so I, I think that there's like a real need for this conversation to continue and to keep growing. These are transnational issues, right? And with migration, a constant, that it goes between back and forth, and that's the importance of not just the countries, but the diasporas as well. So tell me, oh, go ahead. Yeah, so I would say, so transnational and translational in, in the sense that part of our work is a lot about translating. So we'll translate, sometimes we translate even when we speak English to English because yeah. our Englishes are so different and our local contexts are so different. So translating from Chicanx to New Yorican to Cuban American to Dominican American. So, so sometimes we don't even understand each other when we're talking the same language. Um, but a lot of this also happens. Um, so for example, uh, major Latin American queer thinkers like Nestor Perlonger, who wrote 
absolutely brilliant work in Argentina and Brazil. And uh, in the 1980s and 90s, and was only translated two years ago. So most people in English were not reading Nestor Perlonger, even though Nestor Perlonger was a crucial person for thinking Latin American queer studies. Um, so this happens a lot. So I totally agree that translation is really crucial. You know, and um, I, I want us to have a reality dysfunction conversation on just terms. Like, what, where you come from? What do we call X, Y, Z, right? So I think it's super important to understand just that rainbow of opportunities and terminologies and definitions that it has by region within a country. So, you know, with that important, and I think of the term Miramar as a barrio of San Juan. So who is Lola von Miramar and why is she important for your work? Why is it important for Latinx communities and studies? <laughs> So that is funny. So, uh, so wait a sec. So I don't really know where you all are from. So I know Juan Carlos, I know that you're from Puerto Rico, but Alex, where are you from? So uh, my background is Colombian. I was born in New York, raised in Michigan. I've lived in Boston. I've lived in Miami. Oh. So a little bit of everywhere, right? And, and now I'm back in New York and I live in Brooklyn and I work in Manhattan and I work yeah. at a college in Manhattan. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and Todd, you're Chicano. I, I, I am. I am. And uh, I, this, I, I have a whole bunch of other questions that, that I want to ask you. I keep looking at the clock and I yeah. keep thinking to myself. Yeah. No, okay. So we good. might. But we might have to we might have to bring you back for for round two. I'm <laughs> I'm I'm from Michigan. I was I was born there and I was and I was raised there. I lived there uh, pretty much all my life um, until I moved here to Prescott, Arizona, where I teach uh, Chicano studies and community organizing at Prescott College. Wow. So um, okay. So this is I am Larry Lafontaine and I am from San Juan, Puerto Rico. But in fact, I am from a neighborhood called Miramar. So Miramar is a neighborhood in Santurce. It's near Condado. It's not that far from old San Juan. It's a very central neighborhood. It was an amazing place to grow up because, um, you know, it was close. It, it was close to many things. It, there, there was lots of community life. Um, you know, I, I walked to my school and it's also a very pretentious neighborhood. It's also uh, Puerto Rico is a very class stratified society. So Miramar is also a very come mierda. Uh, Miramar is also very can be very elite. I mean, I was a scholarship student. My, my mom had to teach. My mom worked in a library in exchange for my tuition and the tuition of my sister. So our class position. Well, so Miramar, people think it's all wealthy people. And that's just not true because there's lots of middle class people and middle class people that really range from from precarious middle class to well-established middle class. So uh, in the early 2000s, I created a blog and then people would playfully call me Lola because my name is Larry. So I said, well, I am Lola from Miramar. Uh, Lola von Miramar. Um, it, it was an homage to um, 
a German <laughs> artist, Rosa von Fraunheim. And uh, so that was just like a name that I was using. And in 2010, Fausto Fernos, uh, a drag performer, a performance artist in Chicago, said, um, Larry, get a wig, get a dress, and please get to Chicago because we want to record uh, a cooking video with you for a series we're starting uh, as part of the Feast of Fun podcast. So Fausto Fernos and his husband, Mark Filian, um, started a series, uh, a podcast, Feast of Fun, Gay Fun Show in the early 2000s. And in 2010, they said, let's, let's extend this um, turn it into a, uh, a drag queen cooking show. And that's sort of wh where I started to perform in drag. I was writing about drag, about Puerto Rican drag mostly, but I had never been interested in performing in drag myself. I thought there's other people who are very talented. They do it very well. I'm quite happy being an audience member. I appreciate drag performance. But Fausto and Mark thought it would be hilarious um, to, for me to dress in drag and to, for us to record a video called Cooking with Drag Queens, How to Make Tostones. So that was our first video. So, or patacones in Colombia. Uh, or, or twice fried crispy green plantains. And that started a very long collaboration. So we've made videos on how to make arroz con pollo. Uh, or rice with chicken, um, cooking with drag queens. Um, we've um, recorded a video how to make coquito. Uh, so Juan Carlos, I don't know if you make coquito. At the I don't. I just drink it. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Got to have a lot of rum. <laughs> and they've invited a lot of other queens, uh, like Black, Latina, Asian American, white queens. So the, they have over 40 episodes in that series. But so Lola Bon Miramar started online on youtube and you know what happens when you do that is that everybody wants to meet you in person and then i have to explain but i don't know how to do my own makeup <laughs> i don't really have any kind of training and they're like learn figure it out so for the last 10 years i've been appearing and performing in person and online as lola von miramar which i just followed on twitter so i don't know if you're very active <laughs> But I just followed you on Twitter. Also, just I just found the the link uh, for that particular uh, segment, how to make tostones. So, so it's it's pretty funny because so you know we're all about like uh, you know making them tasty, but then the crisis in the video is that there's no tostonera, there's no tostones press. So then, um, Saltina Obama Bouvier which is a drag queen played by Fausto Fernos says, we can just use cha-cha heels. And she picks up her shoes from the ground and we smash the tostones away. So it's probably not very hygienic, but it was delicious. That's all right. <laughs> a little bit of dirt never hurt anything in the way anything tasted. <laughs> <laughs> I made, I tried to make tostones for my 14 year old the, uh, a little while ago, but I realized that it's, it's more complicated than I imagined that it was. Yes. So, cause mine turned out not very tasty. Oh, <laughs> well, so you can watch this video. Yeah. So you, yeah. you soak, you soak the, the green plantains in salted water. Did not. Know uh, that. And, and then you can, then you, you fry them twice. You have to be careful. You don't want to be throwing water into hot oil. Uh, but then you, you, you season them with adobo, uh, with garlic salt, 
in Puerto Rico, we eat them a lot with like mashed garlic with olive oil. Oh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so your tostones should be very crispy, salty, and flavorful. It should have some garlic. Garlic is essential. If you don't like garlic, it's well, it's, it's okay. I love garlic. Love garlic. Yeah, bring it on. <laughs> you, you, it's, I don't think there can be too much garlic, actually. I can't so. stop laughing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really, I really messed that one up. I just, I bought the plantain and I just sliced them up, man, and mashed them down with a fork and threw them in the fire. Threw ah, them in the fire. Maybe, <laughs> maybe they were too ripe. It sounds like they were more like maduros or amarillos. Yeah, it just, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to watch this video and then I'm going to, I'm going to try it again. Cause I told Leona, I was like, she was, I was like, these are so good. Like, I love tostones, you know. And then when we had them, she just looked at me like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> it's just like, and I told her, I said, no, I said, I messed them up, man. I was like, this uh, isn't, yeah. this isn't so, the, so the plantain has to be green. It okay. has to be very firm, very hard. And you because, gotta fry uh -huh. it before you mash it. See, it's fried twice. So you cut, you cut very thick slices. You fry those. So maybe you have a plantain and then let's say you cut it into six or seven pieces at the most. And then you deep fry those. And then you take them out, you can soak them in salt water, and then you smash it, uh, or you know, you press it down, not with a fork. Um, yeah. You need like a plate or a tostones press. I have a tortilla press, I'll use that. Ah, tortilla. Yeah. Uh, and, and then like now you have this like more like pancake yeah. sort of thing, and then you fry it a second time. And that's when it gets really crispy. Uh -huh. So it's crispy because it has been deep fried twice. <laughs> That it, it also has to be, it, it, it cannot be a ripe plantain. It has to be a green plantain. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, You're very so, healthy. Thanks. <laughs> hey. Deep fried twice. <laughs> I mean, if you got to deep fry it twice, you got to deep fry it twice, right? There's no, <laughs> I mean, don't, don't fight it. Just you well, know, go with it. That, yeah. that would be a great title, right? Cooking tostones with your tortilla press. <laughs> <laughs> Reality dysfunction tostones. <laughs> Being Latino in the U.S., that's what that means. Right? Dis dis dysfunctioning your reality with adobo and drag queens. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Oh, I think the problem, Todd, is that you didn't, you weren't dressed in drag when you tried. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I will, I will do that the next time that we make tostones and I'll I, because my uh, 14 year old is definitely there you um, go. she really wants me to let her put makeup on me and um, dress me up so I don't know if we're going to find a uh, dress around here that fits me but um, we can make something happen me and my friends used to use sabanas, the bed sheets, and just make some kind of outfit with that. And you look pretty. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I'll put a little brooch right You can here. put a towel like the women after they get out of the shower. You put the towel and then you definitely look kind of draggish. You know? So thrift stores are a really good. I can't believe we're having a conversation about how to perform in drag. But, um, so I write about drag. And uh, I encourage everyone to do drag. You go to a thrift store or to uh, dress for less. You know, you don't want to spend a lot of money. Sure. Um, some, some drag queens spend thousands of dollars. Yeah. And I think that's really important to recognize. Um, for some people, this really is their career. It is a business. It is a type of employment. 
for other people, it's really just much more about fun or even about exploring gender. I think RuPaul's Drag Race has been a really interesting space for Latina queens, for Latina performers. There's been over 20 uh, Puerto Rican uh, performers or contestants in the 13 seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race. But there's also been um, Chicanas, um, like uh, Valentina. Valentina became very, very popular. Um, there's been this season, there was a Dominican, a Dominican American contestant from, from the Bronx. So drag, drag can be fun. Um, but in my book, I, I talk, I, I say that drag, drag can also be political. Um, drag can be about raising awareness. Uh, drag can be about challenging orthodoxies. Um, dra drag is, is, is not just funny. Uh, drag can be about questioning racism. So for example, I look at the work of Javier Cardona and his performance, You Don't Look Like, and his use of blackface and wigs and images in drag. I look at Freddie Mercado's work and how Freddie really invites us to think what is human, what is non-human, um, what is a non-human animal, like what is alive, what is dead, like how do, what is a monster, like how do we even challenge our conceptions of what humans are? Mm. Um, so drag, drag is so many things, but, but drag is also about making tostones. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I hope that your listeners, the listeners of the Reality Dysfunction podcast can see our Cooking with Drag Queen series. Yes. And I think the key for drag queens, and I love drag, there's a restaurant here in New York, and I want to say it's called Lips. It's right around Midtown. Yes. And they have nightly shows. And I, I love going, just, I'm in the neighborhood, I go to grab a drink when it's allowed, when it was allowed, right? And it was fascinating to see the outfits and the hair. And I'm like, I want to be that. I'm like, I'm a woman, right? I identify as a woman. And I, I just can't rock that look. You know, I can't, the shoes. And so I think for me, the key is the shoes. Oh. Like never do I see a drag queen in some flats. <laughs> <laughs> it is um, un tacon that is like, how do you walk in that? I want to, I want to do that. That's <laughs> so, amazing. I think so, for me, like. Yeah. And I think the, the other important thing to remember is that some drag performers um, are cisgender people. So they identify with the gender they were assigned at birth. But some, in fact, a lot of them are also trans people. So performing in drag can be a space for transgender persons. So I write, I write about Silvia Rivera, who was a trans activist. But I also write about people like Lady Kateria at Escuelita, which was a major queer Latinx space in New York City. And about I went Bar there. Barbara Herr. <laughs> so Bar Barbara Herr, who's on Facebook, like she talking about the pandemic in New York City. So she has been, you know, out of work, so to speak, for almost a year. And now that the bars are reopening and she's a transgender performer, she has a whole a theater piece called Transmission about what it means to be a Puerto Rican transgender woman born and raised in the Bronx who went through uh, gender correction surgery in New York City. So those are some of the things that I write about in my book, Translocas. Yeah, and here in New York, um, right before the pandemic, but really now too, there's been a lot of the drag queen story hour. And yeah. so they, you know, they would take 
What's drag queen story hour? So they would basically have story hour like they do at the libraries, but the person reading, the presenter would be in drag, full is this, drag. Is this on YouTube? It is on YouTube, but so in my school, I know they program, would come. a web page everywhere. There's a yeah. page. Yes, so they would have like drag queens go into the elementary, right, for elementary age students. They would take them into, you know, and then students would then go or go to the libraries and you would have, you would go to, and I know in the pandemic, they started doing it. I think it was on Zooms with some schools and some libraries, they were offering it. And I'm like, it was great. And I, I, I was able to attend like one or two Zooms where they had them at the libraries and I loved it. It was, it's fascinating. I mean, they're performers that's, you know, they're able to just come to life, like on the screen and you feel engaged and I loved it. It was really great. And it's also about, um, uh, you know, allowing children to also enjoy drag performance in an age appropriate context. So right. uh, m yeah. most people associate drag with adult entertainment and, and that is clearly um, mm -hmm. where it has developed and thrived. But there's nothing wrong about having a drag queen go read a story for kids. First of all, because kids love dress up. Yeah. In fact, kids are much more open and, and interested and can be much more transgressive. Adults are the real problem in yeah. our society. That is, um, so I think it's about challenging and transforming all of that. That is completely correct. Um, we are running out of time. And as a librarian, I want to say that Drag Queen Story Hour is the best program that you can take your kid to because it's not only funny, it's a, a regular book reading in a library safe space and you will have a way of showing your kids how to express him, himself, themselves in a way that you probably can't teach at home. So I strongly recommend queer uh, drag queen story hours are usually, you know, you can just check in your, in your public library and the programs go there. So as we're running out of time, unfortunately, we're gonna have to call you Larry again to call back, right? Um, I wanna thank you really for this wonderful and enlightening conversation for all of us and all our listeners. I think it's been an important conversation to host. And um, I thank my awesome co-hosts, including those that didn't speak at the end, like Reiner, the hi, Reiner. <laughs> and, you know, we look forward to continue future conversations with you and other um, LGBTQ Latinx activists um, to showcase realities and histories of our communities in the U.S. and the diaspora. And I think it's a perfect opportunity to, as we begin to celebrate an upcoming summer pride months and events so uh reality dysfunction thank you follow us on facebook and i know there's something else i have to say but i don't remember what it is <laughs> it was is it fuck latinos for trump yeah fuck latinos <laughs> for trump <laughs> <laughs> oh well thank you so much juan carlos thank you todd thank you alex thank you rainer um it's been a real pleasure to be on reality dysfunction podcast um, I really appreciate the invitation. Oh, um, and if you're interested in my book, Translocas, you can get it with a 30% discount using the discount code UMS21 at the U 
University of Michigan podcast. So I think that's much better than buying it. You can buy it on Amazon, but if you buy it at the University of Michigan Press uh, website, it has 30% off. Using, I, just, using, I just bought uh, it full price. Oh, well, that's okay. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, but but yeah, there's a there's a flyer on the website. If you look at the flyer, it has the discount code UMS twenty one. All right. This is the reality dysfunction.